This is Physician to Physician Plant-Based Nutrition. I'm Tracy Cushing, an emergency medicine physician. I'm also a mom, a wife, four-time Ironman, and I've been plant-based for 11 years. And I'm Eden English. I'm an internal medicine physician, a hiker, a ski boarder, a mom, and I've been vegan for the last five years. We're passionate about helping other doctors learn the science behind plant-based eating so they can help their patients develop sustainable, healthy eating habits. Each episode, we're breaking down the science behind plant-based eating and answering the questions we know most doctors have and most patients ask. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Eden. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing well. Why don't you tell us what you had for dinner last night? Last night, we went with one of our staples. So it's rice and beans and greens. And it's usually brown rice for us, but you can mix it up however. And last night was pinto beans, but you can mix that up too. My favorite greens are the collards, but we mix that up as well. And then we make tons of it, like each one in the slow cooker. And then it's lunches for the whole week. So it's wonderful and it's so flavorful. But you can also like cut up an avocado in there for a little extra creaminess or whatever you want. But last night was just the rice and beans and greens. How about you? We are working our way through a Costco run. So we did a frozen veggie stir fry. Uh, so pre-cut veggies, um, broccoli, mushrooms, snap peas, carrots into the wok with a little bit of the first time we tried the Beyond Meat steak tips. Um, I'm not a huge fan of their sausages and I've kind of moved away from the burgers, but I wanted something, you know, just to kind of taste it and see if it would be good. And it was actually quite good. It had a nice umami flavor without being overly meaty because I don't really miss or love the taste of meat. Um, but I thought it was a really nice addition, uh, a little bit of teriyaki sauce uh, over some rice noodles. And it was fantastic. I'm really excited because we have a great guest with us today, Dr. Irvi Shah. And I can't wait to find out what she had for dinner. But first, let me tell you a little bit about her. Um, Dr. Irvi Shah is a hematologist, oncologist, and physician scientist. She holds faculty positions as an assistant attending at the Myeloma Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and is an assistant professor of medicine at the Wild Cornell Medicine. She completed fellowships in HEMONC at Montefiore Medical Center and in cancer immunotherapy by MSK and the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy in New York. She's board certified in IM hematology and med-onc. She's also a member of the Junior Faculty Council. She does have a good personal story, which I'll let her tell you more about, but she was being treated for Hodgkin's lymphoma as an ONC fellow in 2016, and that led to her interest in studying the role of modifiable risk factors in cancer. She's studying the link between nutrition and cancer, which is so fascinating, most specifically myeloma via its effects on metabolic markers, immune system, and the microbiome. Her research program includes clinical retrospective projects, clinical prospective trials, and translational collaborative research. She's the PI of several investigator-initiated trials. She opened the first pilot nutrition trial in plasma cell disorders to date in 2021, and that completed enrollment. She does have two that are open for enrollment right now, and we're going to post those numbers in our show notes. Um, Dr. Shaw has been supported by Career Development Awards for the National Cancer Institute, Paul Calabrese K-12 the International Myeloma Society, and the American Society of Hematology Scholar Award. Her research is also funded by the Health Tree Foundation, Paula and Roger Reine Foundation, Allen Foundation, and Willow Foundation. Additionally, she received the American Society of Hematology Clinical Research Training Institute Award, ECOG Akron Young Investor Translational Research Award, 
I keep going, the Henry Moses Prize and Celgene Future Leaders in Hematology Award. She's currently pursuing a master's in science degree because she has not done enough yet through the Gertzner Sloan Kettering Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. And Dr. Shah has published first author papers in many prominent journals like the Blood and Clinical Cancer Research. Um, and she's been an invited speaker and session chair nationally and internationally. And yet she made time to join us today on this podcast. So thank you so much. And let's start with the most important question. What did you have for dinner last night? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast and talk to uh, like-minded doctors who are really interested in this field. Uh, actually, I, I enjoy a variety of food, so I try to switch it up with different cuisines. And y yesterday I ended up having, uh, uh, it was more an Indian uh, touch to it, but it was cucumber, it, uh, uh, raw cucumber, cilantro, and boiled beets and coconut yogurt with black salt. And then I also had eggplant and potatoes cooked in like red chili cumin and turmeric powder. And then there's an Indian flatbread called uh, thepla. It's T-H-E-P-L-A spelled. But it's it's got like spices and fenugreek or leaves in it in the flatbread. So I it it with that. So that's one of my favorite uh, flatbreads from the Indian food. So I, I tend to try to uh, eat it at times. Gosh, that sounds good. So much more exciting than my meal. No, I, I heard yours not good and practical, but had all the tricky ingredients of good health. <laughs> yeah, a lot better than my frozen Costco meal. We all need that sometimes. I do the Amy's uh, uh, kitchen. Amy has Amy's kitchen has these black bean burritos with rice. So sometimes I do those as well. We all need simple meals sometimes too. So tell us, Dr. Shaw, because it is great to talk to like-minded doctors, but how did you get into the plant-based side of things? Tell us a little bit about your vegan journey. Yeah, so um, I grew up eating mostly a vegetarian diet, but I did eat a lot of eggs and dairy and um, I thought that that was really important for overall health for me. And then in 2016, during my oncology fellowship, I ended up getting a Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I needed chemotherapy for four months. And through that time, I continued my like research and uh, once a week seeing patients. But through that time, I really had a lot of family members telling me, oh, you should eat this and do that because, you know, they're trying, they care and they want to see what they can contribute to it. But it also it, uh, got me thinking that we go through so much training, but we don't really learn too much about nutrition. And I don't really know what the evidence is or what the data out there is for nutrition and cancer. And so after my treatment and when I had some time to process and think about it, I started reading a lot more about this. And it kind of became a side hobby for me is to read about nutrition and its impacts on health and overall. So like cardiovascular disease, endocrinology, and also cancer. And I felt like oncology is way behind in nutrition compared to cardiovascular disease endocrinology where we have trials and now it's come, becoming more mainstream to talk about this with patients. But in cancer, we still think that, you know, patients should eat whatever they want to and, um, you know, we, um, it, we shouldn't be telling them what to do because the past where, you know, most cancer patients would be having nausea, vomiting, losing weight, and all of those things, it was felt that, you know, if you try to restrict a patient's diet, then you're actually making them lose weight and be sicker. So most oncologists say to patients, just eat whatever you want as long as you're getting calories. And so hearing all of this and knowing that there really aren't any good 
clinical trials in the oncology space looking at nutrition other than, you know, we have the most of them in solid tumors like breast cancer, prostate cancer, and uh, colon cancer, maybe some. Uh, there isn't too much in, uh, you know, heme malignancies, for instance, because patients didn't live too long until recently where treatments have gotten so good that patients really have much improved lifespan. So when I went into a faculty position, I initially thought I could never really make this a full career. So I was doing a lot of immunotherapy research and other um, areas. But when um, I decided to start small and did the first pilot study, and then that grew into the next study and the next study, and it's now become my full-time research. And I've moved away from doing um, all the other traditional like genetics and uh, drug therapy trials. And I, that's a smaller part of what I do. Now. That is just incredible. Um, as a fellow cancer patient, uh, I'm a breast cancer patient, and I was vegan before I became a breast cancer patient and, like yourself, sought out all the information I could find and was still shocked that I was told to just, quote, eat a lot of protein. And that was really about the the extent of the dietary guidance I got. And there's so much misinformation out there as well, things like soy, what have you. So I really, really appreciate you yes. bringing the spotlight on nutrition, in particular with oncology, because I agree, it seems, even though most of medicine isn't isn't super advanced this way. Oncology seems to be particularly behind in, in the relationship. And, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the gut microbiome and, you know, the intestinal cell wall integrity and inflammation. Can you tell us a little bit, just sort of for those of us that don't practice hematology, oncology, like where is the link um, sort of between inflammation, gut microbiome and, and you know, plasma cell disorders or, or blood cancers? So, uh, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface of my, the microbiome field. And like you were seeing a lot of data come out now, but it's, I think, another wave of uh, research coming. Like we had genetics, we had immunotherapy, and now we have the microbiome coming uh, front and center. And I think with that, it's exciting because the biggest driver of change for the microbiome is diet. So diet plays a really big role in uh, our microbiome and one of the modifiable factors that we can actually do something about. Um, we now are learning that the microbiome is not just about the bacteria that cohabit inside us, but they also have immunomodulatory and immune properties as well as metabolic um, health regulation of our body. So we are actually more microbiome cells than human cells, if you count like the number that we have inside of us. And so this is kind of an area that we can no longer ignore. And um, there's a lot of data looking at how the microbiome impacts risk of cancer and progression in cancer and survival as well. And many of these studies are done through mouse models or through just getting patient samples for, of the microbiome and seeing associations. And what we do know is that having higher diversity of the gut microbiome, so meaning more variety of different kinds of bacteria in the microbiome. So if you think about like a forest with many different kinds of trees and plants, instead of having just one kind of tree in the whole forest. So having a variety of those bacteria in the microbiome is associated with better survival in many cancers and post-transplant too. So um, trying to improve gut microbiome diversity is one very important thing. 
And then two is also improving the beneficial kind of bacteria. So not just diversity, but can we increase the good bacteria? And one of the kinds of good bacteria are butrate producers, where they make this molecule, which is called butrate, which is a short chain fatty acid, having anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory properties. And so we're seeing this not just for plasma cell disorders, but there's data coming uh, uh, for all cancers, he, liquid and solid tumors around, you know, uh, the importance of the microbiome in the disease. I think it's so fascinating, all the discussion that's going on now about the microbiome and how it affects everything. We've been spending this season talking with cardiologists and neurologists and nephrologists, and everybody has brought up the microbiome and how it's a field of sort of burgeoning research, and we need more and more and more. And I loved one of the GI articles that we talked about. And I've been saying that to my patients for weeks and weeks now. You've got to eat 30 different plants a week, 30 different kinds of plants every week. And at first they look at you like you're crazy. But when you say like spices count, you can get there. And most of my patients are pretty receptive to that. So I love trying to sort of instill that in people because that increases the diversity in your gut microbiome and it keeps the healthy stuff alive. And it's really not hard. It's a much easier concept than like counting your calories forever or, you know, just try to eat the rainbow, but go for 30. Here's a number if you want it, because everybody loves to have a number to go for. So right. I, I actually bring that up in my talks often, too, because I think it's such a nice um, uh, reachable, attainable goal that automatically improves diet quality very quickly. And um, I've had like, um, I think one of the talks I gave last year uh, patients got together after that and created a spreadsheet and they were using it as a way to, um, you know, uh, as a competition to see that whether they get to that every week or not. So I thought that was really nice of what they did to like, try to get them to themselves to, you know, be motivated. And I love all the articles you brought to talk about today. What do you think the most surprising thing or finding in your research has been for you so far? So um, one of the papers we published I could talk about was in clinical cancer research last year. And I started working on this with uh, Dr. Alexander Lisokin, who is a, a colleague and mentor at MSK. He was interested in studying the microbiome and had been collecting samples on a clinical trial of patients with multiple myeloma on maintenance therapy. So post their induction chemotherapy, they were now in their remission or with minimal disease and they were just being followed with maintenance, a pill called lenalidomide and they were taking it. And on this clinical trial, it was just an observational study looking at outcomes on the maintenance therapy. And on that study, he was collecting stool samples. Um, and then when I started and with my interest in looking at nutrition, we collected dietary surveys on these patients as well. And then we looked at the association between the gut microbiome, um, their outcomes, and their diet, and so looked whether we would see a link. While the study was small, and this was one of the first projects I was working on, I wasn't really sure I'd find a link, and I was a bit skeptical because it was a small study. But what was really interesting was that um, we divided the patients into those with sustained MRD negativity. And when we talk about MRD negativity, mean, we mean M MRD stands for minimal residual disease negativity. And mim minimal residual disease negativity is a way of measuring um, complete remission or no evidence of disease in the bone marrow. So it's looking at no, no myeloma left in these patients. And so patients who we looked at two groups, sustained MRD negative and sustained M and MRD positive, meaning there is still residual disease. And we looked at 
um, sh uh, short-chain fatty acid levels, so stool butrate levels. And we also looked at the microbiome, looking at butrate producers. And what we were able to show between uh, in this was that patients who were sustained MRD negative were high, had higher levels of stool butrate producers and butrate concentrations in their stool. And then we went one step further to look at the diets of you know, all these patients and say, is there an association between diet and the butrate levels in the stool and then MRD negativity rates? And we were able to show that diets which were higher in healthier proteins, so plant-based and seafood proteins, and higher in flavonoid intake, which is what comes only from plant foods, were associated with higher levels of butrate in the stool and so sustained MRD negativity. So while this was a small retrospective study where we collected data on patients on this trial, we still were able to see an association that was significant. And so I think this brings up a point like, you know, when patients are in post their chemotherapy and they're like, what can we do? Uh, here's something that you could do is like, you know, um, consider uh, eating healthier plant-based, plant-rich foods to increase um, the gut microbiome diversity and also uh, increasing um, butyrate levels in the stool, which could potentially maybe improve outcomes for these patients. That's just awesome. Is there a larger trial uh, planned or ongoing or, or, or is this is the study done for now? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, we definitely want to do larger trials. We have some ongoing, so I'll just maybe summarize what we're doing now. So in myeloma or plasma cell disorders, we have a really nice opportunity to study um, prevention and survivorship because there is um, these precursor disorders called monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance and smoldering myeloma where the standard of care is observation. And we tell these patients who have this abnormal protein in their blood, there's really nothing you can do, but a small percent of you are going to progress to develop myeloma, and we're just going to observe and wait till that happens. And patients, of course, do get anxious with that, but we also don't want to start therapies early because this disease myeloma is traditionally not thought to be curable, so just starting treatment early may not be truly beneficial and not everybody is going to progress. Um, so we started out with that population and we did the pilot study, the Nutrivention pilot study, where it was just 20 patients that we enrolled, but looked to see if we can alter biomarkers associated with increased risk of progression to cancer. So biomarkers like the microbiome, metabolic markers, inflammation, things like that. So we looked at all of that. And some of the early data, we're still analyzing all of it, but we presented some of it at the American Society of Hematology meeting last year and showed that, um, you know, we were able to improve the gut microbiome um, butyrate concentrations. So the, the short-chain fatty acids, the butyrate levels increased in these patients at 12 weeks from baseline. They're also the butyrate producers, so the bacteria that make the butyrate increase from baseline to 12 weeks. And then we also showed that there was an improvement in metabolic markers like insulin, IGF-1, and adiponectin, leptin, which we know are associated with risk of progression to myeloma. So we were able to show you know, this improvement in all these biomarkers. With that study, we've ended up, uh, you know, given that that study looks interesting and successful, we're doing a larger randomized study that is currently enrolling. That's the Nutrivention 3 study. And that's a 150 patient study, so it's going to be really large. Um, but we have 
three arms in the study. We are looking at the same whole food plant-based diet through a company called Plantable that offers the coaching and the meals. But we, we also have a research dietitian who is following these patients closely. And um, this was the same intervention in our pilot study too. And uh, patients on that intervention um, will get three, three months of the intervention and then followed for a year. The second arm on the study is looking at supplements, so omega-3 and curcumin, because a lot of patients, you know, often may not want to change their diet, but also they are taking these supplements, assuming they help. So we want to understand the true effects on the microbiome and cancer progression for patients. And then the third arm is placebo supplements, but it's a double-blinded study, the supplement arm. So patients don't know if they're getting the placebo or real supplement. But the way we've done it is that at four months, so after the first three months, the patients on the supplements arms are going to get the diet too. So it's everybody gets the diet at some point. It's just a crossover with a delayed design. And um, so that study is enrolling and I'm excited or looking forward to see what that shows. But it's going to take a few years before we see, see data with that. And then the question you asked about, you know, with our clinical cancer research paper, we are looking in the survivorship setting and we have a pilot small study going on now, but I hope that we can expand this further eventually. And in this pilot study, we have a study looking at two different maintenance drugs for patients. So post their chemotherapy, 50% of the patients, so it's a 100 patient study, 50 are going to get Revlimid and 50 are going to get Daratumumab. So these are two different maintenance drugs and we're looking at quality of life as the primary endpoint in this study. What we've done is we've amended the study to allow 15 patients on each arm to get a plant-based diet to see the effect with immunotherapy uh, in the study. So we'll have um, some patients who opt not to get it, who will just get the uh, immune therapy and some will get immunotherapy plus diet. And that's currently enrolling and, you know, patients are really excited about it. So we will see hopefully in the next year, in a year or two, we'll have some data with that as well. Really interesting stuff. And the diet, you said it was the plant something diet? Plant. So it's a, it's a whole food plant-based diet, which is basically minimally processed plant-based foods, which includes uh, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, uh, grains, uh, whole grains. We have partnered with a company called Plantable. And that company ships patients the meals, provides health coaching too, where we also have a research dietitian that provides some of the guidance and coaching. So these patients are getting, uh, we're helping patients transition much easier than just telling them, okay, eat more plant foods. We're actually sending them the meals to do it. And I think that helps because uh, sometimes when you tell a patient just eat more fruits and vegetables or grains, they just don't know where to start. But on our study, we see that like patients, once they get their meals, they're able to do it more easily. We give them lunch and dinner, but we give them ideas for breakfast and snacks. They eat to satiety. We don't calorie restrict. Because of that, you know, they see the benefits for themselves overall in the first few months. And then they, even when we stop giving them the meals, many of them want to continue doing it because they're all now seeing the benefits for themselves. Awesome. That was really my next question is how do they stay on it after? But it sounds like they're seeing the benefits. So that's convincing them to stay on. And then they're able to transition because they had the the RD and the coaching. Is that something you feel like is sort of translatable to gin pop? I mean, it's a pretty sort of aggressive level of handholding initially to get those patients on board. How would you see that translating to, to those of us that aren't in the study? How could we help our patients get 
play it forward yeah. without giving them three months of meals. This is a problem of like, how do we get nutrition insurance uh, approved or get insurance to pay for nutrition? So some of it is going to be through studies like this or other bigger studies that show that actually this um, is successful or makes an, a difference in a clinical endpoint. And then we get approval and then, you know, insurances would reimburse it. But if that ended up happening at some point, then that becomes much easier for us as physicians to just prescribe it and say, like, you're going to get a month of meals and you need to do this as a medicine like you do other things. The challenge is that we don't live in a world that that's very easy to do. And so it's going to take time as, you know, these trials and other trials like this mature. Uh, in the meantime, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of educational data out there, which you could, you know, like I have a whole um, bunch of links that I send to patients. So if a patient's interested, I give them a list of these links and I say, check these out. And then whichever one seems right for you, some with meal companies, some with, um, you know, just education, and then they can decide what's right for them if they want to go the extra step and do it. Compared to what patients sometimes pay for medications as copay, paying for a month of meals from a company like Plantable or any other company, there's lots of them, is so much cheaper and a way that they could just help transition and learn how to do it themselves. So, so I think that it's, it's how much it, it, we, we believe in it and the patient believes in it and what they're willing to invest in themselves. To. Do you have a plant-based dietitian at Sloan? So uh, we have many dietitians uh, who, clinical dietitians who work with patients, you can refer them. But um, I think they, they are mainly, you know, following the tr guidelines of what most dietitians do in terms of healthy nutrition and balanced diets. For our study, since what I'm doing is mainly research, I have a full-time research dietitian who works with me, who on all our studies is the dietitian who works with these patients. So we have uh, one person who works full-time on the, these studies. That's awesome. I wish that was available to all patients. I certainly didn't find any resources uh Really, in general, nobody talked to me about diet on my cancer journey, but certainly nobody talked to me about plant-based diets, even though right, there's such a clear link between fat and estrogen in particular and breast cancer, and, and it's pivotal, and yet it seemed not to uh, come onto the radar. So I think this is incredible. I love your research. I, I hope it can be brought to all cancer patients um, sooner than later. I, I think things are slowly changing and I think it's just, you know, we have to keep persisting and eventually it will. Like, I think, um, you know, hospitals have now have healthier meal options. Many hospitals now, you know, label things as plant-based or plant-forward. And this wasn't many years ago. So I think we're starting to see some signs of it, but I think we still need a lot more push towards moving it in that direction. The other thing is that, I think nutrition currently in the form that it's reimbursed by insurance is only if a patient has metabolic disorders like diabetes or obesity uh, or uh, things like that where, where it is truly um, a billable um, visit. Other than that, often cancer centers or things, usually it's comprehensive cancer centers or larger cancer centers have dietitians, but the cost goes to the cancer center, it's not going to the insurance. So that's a part of the issue where unless 
this is reimbursable and becomes more widely applicable um, and maybe through research that we will then start seeing that these dietitians are there at every cancer center and every clinical practice that deals with cancer patients. And while we're on the subject of um, breast cancer and diet, I want to make sure we bring up something that I know is near and dear to Tracy's heart, um, soy and breast cancer. Um, because it, you hear a lot, if you're not listening to the vegan chatter, that soy is bad for breast cancer and you really shouldn't eat tofu or any of those soybeans because obviously that contains estrogen and you're going to get breast cancer. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I hear this often too. I recently, last week, actually had a patient um, who told who had a history of breast cancer and told me that um, they could not do um, this kind of a, um, study or diet because of um, their their oncologist telling them that they cannot eat soy-based products. And uh, it's quite disappointing to hear that after so many uh, trials and evidence and data have been published. The thing is that nutrition research in oncology doesn't go mainstream as much as all the drug trials and all of that, of course. And so most oncologists are not really aware of all the nutrition data out there around oncology. And so with soy and breast cancer, there's a lot of data, especially in epidemiologic and population studies, where people who eat more soy-based products tend to have lower risk of breast cancer and also improved outcomes post-breast cancer. And so with that, um, it, 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 it's counterintuitive to what, you know, people think where there's uh, estrogens in soy. But the reason is thought to be is that one is that soy has phytoestrogens and phytoestrogens are milder estrogens than our own estrogens. And so even if they bind to the receptor, they are actually blocking the stronger estrogens from binding. Also, there's a lot of isoflavones. So isoflavones are flavonoids or plant chemicals with anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory properties. So soy has is very rich in that. And then the last thing is also uh, soy-based foods, since they're plant foods and all plant foods contain fiber, there's a lot of fiber in these foods. So it's high protein, high fiber, and high um, flavonoids in th this food. And so I think that there's um, a lot of health benefits to eating soy, at least in moderate amount. There have been some Mouse studies where the data is a bit more controversial, where there may be some suggestions of an increased uh, risk of cancer or the opposite. And that probably also needs to be thought about is one, those are mouse models and not um, uh, humans. So it might be different from that point of view. And the second thing is that uh, often, you know, we, we, club all soy products into soy-based foods, but thinking about soy supplements and uh, soy protein isolates as different than soy, a minimally processed soy food like tofu, tempeh, edamame, um, I think is important to think about. So um, it may be that soy protein isolates, which is basically defatted soy flour and a lot of the carbs and fiber taken out and just very high concentrations of protein may not be as beneficial uh, also because the isoflavones can vary quite widely in soy protein isolates, whereas in tofu or tempeh, you have, you know, this consistent amount of the soy uh, pro uh, isoflavones and also the protein and the fiber coming together. I can't tell you how happy it makes me to hear you say that. Uh, I, I interact with so many women that are being told by their oncologists to avoid soy 
Um, we have a couple articles in the show notes for anybody that wants to actually read some of the epi epidemiologic data themselves. Um, but I really appreciate you addressing that because it's a big myth out there. Um, and so how can we get, I know oncologists are obviously dealing with a lot of much bigger issues, but how can we get this information out there so that at the very least they can say, you know, I'm going to send you to a dietitian or I'm going to do some research myself without these sort of blanket statements about, well, just eat more protein or just eat what you can tolerate or don't eat soy. Is there a way that we can kind of get the message out more broadly to the oncology world? I think that's a great question. And a lot of it is just spreading awareness as patients have um, started to live longer with these amazing therapies we see and breakthroughs in oncology. I think we need to also start thinking about our oncology patients as uh, patients who also have other comorbidities and risk of death. So even if oncologists or anybody skeptical to say like diet may not affect the cancer directly, the indirect effects on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, uh, kidney disease, all of this is pretty much a lot of strong evidence. And a lot of patients now are dying from their comorbidities than their cancer because of how uh, good the treatments are. And, uh, and so some of the things that, you know, I, I feel will help with bringing things to the forefront. One is um, good, large, randomized evidence-based trials because oncologists, in my opinion, compared more to other specialties, believe um, a lot in like randomized trials and data because, you know, a lot of the data in oncology is from phase three trials and that's how things build one on top of each other for cancer drug therapy. And the other thing would be is also bringing it mainstream to oncology conferences. So one example was um, last year at the American Society of Hematology meeting, um, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to um, design and chair a session for building dietary evidence in heme malignancies. And we had three speakers and um, that, that session actually had a lot of interest from um, patients, oncologists, uh, other caregivers and pe people who were at the conference. And we had so many questions come in that we couldn't even finish answering them for that session. So it just shows that there is a dearth of this information, but you know, patients and even on doctors are receptive, but we just don't have enough of it. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I agree with everything you're saying that more research is needed. And because especially oncologists listen to research, and I love what you're talking about, that the oncologists are dealing with the people that are in remission, but they can still help affect other risk factors. And like you talked about earlier, risk of recurrence of the disease yeah. itself is less. And to me, there's another like case for prevention, which is the, the slam dunks like colon cancer and red meat yeah. and processed meat. Yeah. And it took doctors forever to be willing to have the conversation about tobacco cessation with patients because we thought, well, that's their own thing. We don't, that's their risk that we can't modify. But when we jumped into that, we did make a difference. Patients do respond to us being involved in that. So how do we get more awareness there that this is, it is our job to talk diet because if we can prevent colon cancers by getting people to eat less red and processed meat, not that we would ever want to put oncologists out of business. You guys have other cancers though. There's plenty to work on out there. Let's get rid of some of the ones that are largely diet induced. That is so true. Um, there's actually um, a nice study looking at um, how the red and processed meat leads to an alkylator signature in the cancer, colorectal cancer tumor 
an alkylator gene signature, which is associated with worse survival. And it's, it's very clear showing how the mechanism of red and processed meat leads to a, a genetic change in the tumor and this alkylating signature. And then also with worse survival that was published, I think last year or the year before, but I thought that was a really interesting study because it's truly showing mechanism than just association. We need buy-in from oncologists for this. And to get buy-in, um, a lot of it is going to be education, bringing it to the forefront, mainstream um, conferences and helping oncologists understand the data around what's there because I think we don't really study this in fellowship or things like that. So it's going to, it's going to require a lot of um, awareness. Some organizations like the American Institute of Cancer Research, for instance, is doing a lot of, um, to spread awareness around this for patients and I think healthcare professionals. So on their website, they basically have infographics and information for cancer prevention and survivorship for patients. And I really like that they have these um, guidelines and they talk about these 10 points. And so one of the things I did, you know, in the beginning when I started is that I would often give those guidelines to patients and say, these are some of the things you could do. And amongst those guidelines, almost out of the 10, five or six are related to diet. So it very clearly tells you some of the things you could do. And it's basically talking about eating more plant-based foods, um, eating less red and processed meat or avoiding it, reducing sugary drinks, um, avoiding supplements as they're not going to be the fix for cancer, um, and then breastfeeding for reducing breast cancer risk, and then alcohol limiting. So a lot of their um, guidelines are around diet and nutrition, and then maintaining a healthy weight, being physically active, and then following these guidelines, I think those were the 10 that they talk about. You didn't tell them to quit smoking? Oh, yeah. I think that was in it. <laughs> uh, we actually surveyed, you know, plasma cell disorder patients, over 400 of them. And we asked them, uh, do you know about these guidelines? And only a third of patients actually knew about them. So, you know, we're not doing a great job of telling patients about this information that's already there. But we also saw that uh, patients said that more than half of them said that they were interested in um, getting a nutrition information from their oncologists or doctors. And they also said that if they got the information, they would change or make, make attempts to change their diet. And that was like almost 90 plus percent said that they would make changes or attempt to. And I think often we as oncologists or doctors think that patients are not going to make changes. It's a waste of time to talk about it. And we have such limited time. But Actually, you know, that study went to, I feel, showed us that patients are interested. But we also asked one more question that I thought was very interesting, was we asked them before their diagnosis and after their diagnosis, how many times a week did they eat like different food groups? And I didn't expect to see a difference. I just thought, you know, whatever they're eating, it'll be similar. But we saw a statistically significant increase in the healthier food groups like fruits, vegetables, and plant-based proteins um, and reduction in red and processed meat and junk food by, the, by patients across the board overall. And uh, 
So patients are making changes whether we tell them or not. So it would be good if we can be the ones telling them more evidence-based information than they hear it from social media or things where it's not clear and they get more confusing information. Thank you so much for saying that. I couldn't agree more. I, I know we didn't get this training in school or fellowships or whatever, but if the patients are left with a choice of you know, social media or Dr. Oz or us, like their trusted actual doctors, let's give them some real information. Let's use that 15 or 30 minutes we have with them. Take five of it and tell them to eat more plants, more fruits and vegetables. But this is about your guest spot on. So what's your main message to oncologists out there about what they could do for diet? Or if you could, you know, tell oncologists what you think needs to happen. So I think, uh, you know, I kind of mentioned this before, as patients are living longer with better uh, therapies, they're dying often of comorbidities, or even uh, now with immunotherapies, I think the microbiome and diet are going to play bigger roles because there's going to be synergy with the microbiome and immune system of the patient and immunotherapies. And we know that diet can affect all of this. So I think there's increasing reasons or need for awareness around nutrition, and it can no longer be an ignored field in oncology. I think that we as oncologists need to spend some time educating ourselves and maybe making this a little bit more mainstream for patients as well as fellows in training. And I think one simple way to manage this is when we see patients in clinic, I know we don't have time because there are so many things, but you know, bringing it up just with one or two sentences saying like this could be beneficial and asking them if they want more information. And if a patient says yes, we can always send them links to like the American Institute of Cancer Research website or other links that you think are helpful. So that's one of the ways I do it where I know that in clinic, I don't have time to discuss it with all the patients, all the details, but I will send them a few links to maybe some of the talks I've given discussing the evidence, but also on uh, links where they're like the American Institute of Cancer Research guidelines so they can read it for themselves. So at least in that way, we're not spending hours discussing it, but we're bringing it up, telling them it's important, and then sending them information for them to read after if they want it. That's just awesome. And as a cancer patient, I can't tell you how much appreciated that would be. Um, yeah, I think it's just just fantastic. Really, really great stuff. Great. Uh, one more thing that I just thought about was that as oncologists, and cancer patients, there is this stigma around cancer uh, much more than any other disease, even if the survival is better. Like, you know, just my own experience, like Hodgkin's lymphoma has a really good overall survival and patients live long and most patients are cured. Um, similarly, in breast cancer, many patients are cured. Um, if somebody has heart failure in stage, you know, or a really bad heart failure, survival is probably going to be much worse. But we don't have that same stigma around talking about heart failure as we do with cancer. And because of that, uh, often we feel guilty as oncologists or providers to tell patients about lifestyle changes because we say, okay, they have cancer we should, and they're going through a lot already. We shouldn't be adding more to their stress or burden by telling them about what to eat or what not to eat. And I think that sometimes we are doing patients a disservice by that. And we obviously, as um, doctors, know when to tell a patient and when not to. So it, it is our um, 
um, we have to take each case individually and see. So I don't think we should be telling every patient across the board if they have a lot going on, but think about it and individualize it to the patient or find the right time maybe after they finish their chemotherapy or things like that, where you bring it up. So I think every patient is receptive at different times and that should be something to think about. I think that's a great call out that sometimes we're trying to tiptoe around people with a, a tough diagnosis. We don't want to add anything to their plate, but this is really giving them something else. It's giving them some ownership over what comes next exactly. and something they can actually do to control or modulate what happens next with their disease. And I agree, like we have to find the right time, but we're doctors. We know how to do that. We know how to tiptoe and maybe it's a next visit conversation, but it's not fair to the patient to withhold the information of things that could make their disease better. I don't know, that's me. And, and I have seen so many patients feel so incredibly grateful to hear about this information or just feel like they, they can do something and they are in control of their life, then everything is just dependent on their oncologist, which I think a lot of doctors don't see because they think like when you tell a patient to do this, you're putting more stress on them. But I think you're also actually empowering them with information and they can then decide what they want to do with it. I agree 100%. I was just going to say that it's so you feel so powerless when you hear the word cancer and to know yeah. that you can take back some of that power with diet, exercise, good sleep, meditation, you know, all the other things um, is really empowering for patients because there's so much we can't control about cancer biology. But to know that there are things we can control is a really positive message, I think. Exactly. I totally agree. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. This is Tracy and Eden signing off. Less meat means less disease. Go have a happy plant-based day.